Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we have Cindy Ennis, who was the first American female Winter Paralympic gold medalist in 1980 in Gaio, Norway. Cindy, welcome. Hello. This is, and we're going to get into all of the other stuff that you've done as well. You were, you started off as a as a gold medalist, but also worked with the Schwarzenegger administration in a variety of different capacities. And yes, we are going to get into that. But Cindy, can you take us back a little bit? 1980, you were the first female winter Paralympic gold medalist in alpine skiing. What were the Paralympics like? I think some people have seen the games on television recently. What was it like back in 1980? Well, I actually have to start back in 74 because 74 was the very first time that Americans competed overseas in international competition. And that was in Grand Bernan, France. And um, we were, uh, ragtag does not begin to describe our, uh, you know, our assemblage because everybody was, you know, nobody knew anything, nobody had any social graces, nobody spoke French, um, but uh, we had a really, really good time. Actually, that was where I won four of my seven gold medals. And, um, but beyond that, you know, we had an American team that uh, really showed up and uh, I think uh, gave notice to the Europeans that the Americans were coming and were coming for them. And then um, the 1980s, excuse me, the 1980 uh, Paralympics in Yalo, Norway, were the first time that there was more of the official sanctioning around that race. And um, that was, uh, obviously held in uh, up, upper uh, Norway. And it was an extremely well-organized event. It was um, small scale, not like the participation now, but just this, um, what you might call a very homespun event, but very high level competition from the Europeans because the Europeans had been on the um, notion of uh, uh, handicapped sports, as we, we called it, uh, for much longer. And uh, so, you know, they were much more accomplished and polished than we were because even back then, a lot of the teams uh, trained with their, their regular ski teams. So it, it, we were a, a bit outclassed, but, you know, we... We pulled it out. We had some good racers and uh, I did well and obviously got my designation as kind of the grandma of handicapped skiing there. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned 1974, right? Because, and you're talking about the Europeans. So th th they're one, skiing's often been seen as a European sport, right? That's one of the challenges, but also it was a sport of rehabilitation, wasn't it? After World War II, World War I and World War II, uh, the Europeans, the Austrians, the Germans used skiing as a means of rehabilitation, which then we ended up doing 
after Vietnam, who was on this team? Like, what was the, what was the makeup? Where did people come from on the American team? People came from all over. A number were Vietnam veterans and came out of the California program at uh, Donner Ski Ranch, a number of them. Um, and then we had folks come from, uh, from Winter Park, Colorado, where there was a large handicapped ski program there and uh, that had moved into some competition for certain folks under the tutelage of uh, Coach Hal O'Leary. And then um, just kind of a, a sprinkling of, of folks from other states, but primarily it was Colorado and California, I would have said. Colorado and California. Now I've heard some of the stories about sort of like the Vietnam vets coming and being, you know, maybe at Loveland or something like that in Colorado and this sort of pile of limbs, of prosthetic limbs at the base. How much of that is true and how much of that permeated kind of the, uh, the ethos of, of the group? It's 100% true. Um, and was one of the very first recollections that I have of being with other people with disabilities. Because when I became disabled, you didn't know anyone who had a disability. You didn't, you know, you people weren't out and about. Um, and but it is true that you know what when you were with the the folks with disabilities back then, most of them were young men in their early twenties, mid twenties, who had been wounded in uh, Vietnam, and then of course a sprinkling of of other folks like me. But I mean, these guys were out for having fun, and. You know, when you would go into the room where they were getting ready to go skiing, you would see just legs parked, you know, one by one along the wall. And there was a sign above them that, that said, gone skiing. And to me, you know, if I have an image of, uh, of how, you know, what fun we have and what fun we still have, that would be that image. It, it's that notion that, you know, yeah, I need this for getting around, but man, it doesn't help me skiing and I'm out there and man, I'm just having some fun. So it, it is all true. Which is interesting. So you went from being completely alone, feeling like you were alone. I mean, a lot of people, people with disabilities felt like they were alone, that they were isolated, that they were shut in. And suddenly you're, you're part of a group, but not only are you part of a group, you're part of a group with a bit of an attitude. How much did that define who you were as people and, and defining your space within skiing too? Chris, that is a very insightful question. I'm serious because, you know, I think what's hard for, for folks who don't have a disability in that same way to understand is that when you gain a disability, your first task is to accept yourself as a person with a disability. And then you move on to the larger universe. But I hadn't understood that. I always thought at first, that it was about just behaving normal, normal. And 
when I was with this group of guys, fun loving guys, um, just out there having fun despite their disability, it hit me like a ton of bricks that I did not accept myself as, as a person with a disability. Um, I was trying so hard to just be normal again um, that I hadn't accepted the fact that my life had changed and their lives had changed. And so, so that was a very, very first part of that. But secondly, the other aspect of what you said was so important, which is that, okay, you have a disability, get off your butt and go have some fun. And it was very much the attitude, you know, that if you were going to sit around and feel sorry for yourself, um, you were getting your hindquarters kicked pretty seriously because get out there, enjoy your life. And so those two components, one is, yes, we have a disability. We have to accept that, um, incorporate, not accept, incorporate that in our self-image. But secondly, ditch it. Let's go have some fun. Don't let it get in the way. What so? What about your story? I mean, so you were a skier, and then you ended up losing losing a hand in in an accident. How did how did that come about? Because you also talk about like the PTSD and some of this. I mean, it sounds like it was. I mean, because you don't get into this situation without a bit of trauma, right? So, how did that work for you? Well, I had been a high school and college ski racer. And uh, while I was at school in Pocatello, Idaho, um, I was working in a fast food restaurant at a taco time and got my hand caught in the meat grinder and um, was in the meat grinder for, uh, they judged around a minute and a half um, oh, and did not- That sounds brutal. It was beyond brutal. It, it, you know, it was, and no one would help me. Um, and so, I was just trapped in this machine. No one would help me because it was so sickening. Yeah. And finally, I was able to turn off the machine. And uh, they called a volunteer, you know, there was a, you called the volunteer fire department because it was a smallish town. And um, they tried to pull my arm out of the machine. And of course, I was completely enmeshed. And uh, so I started bleeding and then um, and then we get to the hospital and there's no doctor in the hospital and he's at a dinner, it's a Saturday night. And so I waited an hour for the doctor to come wearing the machine on my arm. And um, I woke up the next morning and had no recollection of what had happened. I mean, I had no memory at all of what had happened to me. All I could remember was walking into the restaurant and the rest was fuzzy. And so I had um, severe PTSD, uh, like psychosis um, for many, many months. Um, and, uh, you know, gradually improved to where I could remember what happened. But then, you know, that whole notion of of dealing with the images. Um, it's still something I deal with 
not every day, but I can't watch television, for example, for certain, excuse me, I, I watch lots of television, but I can't watch certain shows. You know, I can't watch violence. I can't watch cuts and blood and things like that, that trigger. I mean, just like that, it's just like that. But, you know, one of the things that I think is so important in having real PTSD, not like bad breakup PTSD, but like, you know, but I mean, when you talk to the guys who come back from from war, I mean, what they've seen is, you know, it's just untenable for the human mind in some way. And that's what you more would call PTSD. It's about this notion of self-care and in how you take care of yourself. But back when I was injured, there was no label of PTSD. There was no psychological um, description uh, or definition for PTSD, it was still very Freudian about. And so I went to, I was having like these terrible, terrible nightmares and daymares and blacking out in class when I was in school. And I go to a psychiatrist and, and you know, back then you did lay down on the couch and, and he says, so why did you wanna sleep with your father? I'm like, what? <laughs> and he goes, well, I mean, that was Freud, you know, the right. Freud, the like, why did you do this to yourself? And so, you know, the there was just no understanding and no way to save yourself um, when you had this. And so it's just something you have to develop a lot of a lot of self-understanding about. It's the kind of thing because it's also it's so closely tied in some ways chronologically to the Vietnam War. And I remember as a kid hearing about, you know, what what became what was later diagnosed as PTSD as being like flashbacks. Yes. And, and, and so I assume that that's that's sort of the way it was for you, because it was such a graphic, painful situation that then. You, you you flash back to that and and I mean it's kind of one of those things that you could never imagine happening but you could also imagine it happening but when it actually does happen you go oh that's the worst thing that I could have imagined happening yes and that's your more classic uh, you know it is interesting now to have grown so old that uh, that you know I've gone from at 19 having no definition for what trauma-induced um, uh, trauma induced psychological disorder, whatever you might call that, uh, PTSD, um, you know, from basically just a Freudian point of view. And at age 19 to my very seriously advanced age now to where it's almost so overgeneralized to you know, say you know, everybody, everybody's got PTSD at this point, and I, I, I don't like that. I don't like that because I think in some ways it minimizes what I have seen. I've worked with uh, the, the folks with disabilities from war, and you know, I mean, they're coming back with some, some serious, serious psychological damage from what they've seen and. You know, I certainly know that and understand that. Um, and it's just something where there has evolved, I think, much greater understanding of it. But you're right, it is 
it is flashbacks, but it's not just flashbacks. It's not, it's, it's not a flashback. It's like being back in the situation. It's not like watching a movie of the situation. It's like you are back experiencing the exact situation. It's, it's visceral, it's palpable, it's, it's yes. emotional as well. How, because you said that you're talking to the psychiatrist or the psychologist and, and you're lying on the couch and he asks, why, why do you want to sleep with your, with your father? And, and obviously it sounds like that wasn't part of the problem, but how does the rehabilitation come about? Because it sounds like from that, that you were responsible for becoming healthy again, physically, mentally, emotionally. How were you able to do that? Well, first of all, I think when I walked out of the psychiatrist's office, I realized no one was going to help me, that there was no help. Um, it, it, there just wasn't any help, and I was going to save myself. And so I developed just a whole series of disciplines uh, about, uh, about my PTSD and how to manage it and how to, um, you know, just I guess, how to navigate, because you're not managing it. You're navigating it when it happens. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, people, the, the kind of triggering that happens early on, um, you, there's no way to control it. Uh, what I, I, think, I think would help me a lot, I realized when I went out of that psychiatrist's office, I'd never been a crazy person and, you know, I was crazy, but I said to myself, you know, if you had a, if you had the flu, you wouldn't say I'm a sick person. You would say I'm sick. You know, I have a, I have an illness. And so I decided to develop that mindset that, that my PTSD was like a chronic illness, but it wasn't me. And I think, I think many people who struggle with PTSD really incorporate that they're, a, that they're sick. And as opposed to saying, I have the flu, I have a sickness and are, are managing a chronic illness. So I think I, I developed that early on um, and it's helped me a lot. I, I'm a very logical person. So. How, how, did you, how did you develop that? more short-term kind of manageable view of your mental health because it sounds like you did it on your own i just had to do it i had to do it there wasn't any help you know there, there was just no there was nowhere to go there was nothing you know you couldn't you couldn't go to a psychiatrist you couldn't go no one understood PTSD. I couldn't even tell somebody what had happened to me. You know, I, I had amnesia. I couldn't even remember what had happened to me for um, uh, almost nine months. You know, I'd have these vague things. So, you know, it was just saying, you know what? This isn't gonna beat me. It, it's like the, the physical side, you know, the physical side, you've got to relearn, you've got to do things. Um, but, you, you know, I think for me, I have been always very fortunate to be a joyful person. I mean, I just, I just, you know, I just have that feeling that, you know what, 
I'm going to have a happy life and, and the rest is details. So I think that's part of it. It's interesting because you talk about the physical part and having to relearn, to, to assimilate, to figure out how you're going to do the, your daily activities. But then there's also there's a social side, right? And so on the with the physical, you're, you're different. And yeah. so you're running that risk of, of being on the outside socially, but then with the PTSD, which mental health is obviously something that has never really been understood and continues to be, it's a stigma that, that, that really is misunderstood, you know, I mean, it's just, and so, so, so you are battling both the physical side and the potential mental health, emotional side. How, how, how did that, how did those strategies work in concert for you? Well, um, I think, I think part of it was not having any alternative. I think not having an alternative, and I, I'm, I'm really serious. No, my family, you. you know, we had nine people in the family. My parents had given away my bedroom as soon as I left for college. Um, and, you know, it was, there was no money. I mean, I had to find a job. I had to, um, but I will tell you, you know, you, you have, you have those just very difficult moments. I'll tell you one, I, I wanted to, I needed a job and my roommate had told me that uh, she worked in a cheese shop and the proprietor of the cheese shop, I'd come in one day and he'd said to her, hey, you know, um, would your friend like a job? And I was like, yeah. I'd like a job. And I go in there um, to apply for the job. I fill out the application. On the form, it says, do you have any handicaps? And it's kind of hard to lie when you're missing your hand. And uh, so I said, yes, left hand missing at risk. And so he sits down with me for the interview and it's going really well, you know, for grooving and uh, yeah, he's really, oh yeah, okay, we're gonna get, and he gets to that question and I can't even tell you, it, it was his, he goes, looks down at my hand, looks up and goes, uh, well, there's no way we can hire you. He said, if I put you out there in front of the customers, they throw up and leave. And that was it. And I walked out and you know what? I didn't even question what he said. It didn't, I, I thought, well, yeah, he's right. He's right. So it was, it was hard, you know, you just, but life's hard, you know, you just roll, you keep rolling. Well, it's hard because one, you have to educate him but before you have to educate him, you have to educate yourself that if you're just assuming that what he says is right, then then you go, OK, I have nothing I can I can't argue with you. The only thing is that, you know, ha missing a hand, it's so visual that that I, I couldn't disagree with him. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a dancer and I was kicked out of the dance troupe when I lost my hand um, because they said, well, you can never be on stage. And that's why he, 
skiing was so wonderful to me because for months, all I heard was no, 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 no. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. No, we're not hiring you. No, you're not. And by the way, you're crazy. Um, and, you know, when I started back in skiing, it just opened the world. It opened the world. It was truly as if the curtain got lifted again on my life. So it was that that pivotal to me. How did you end up going skiing for the first time? Who did you go with? Well, actually, of all things, um, I was a member of the Bonnie Bell um, women's ski team, uh, which is odd on its own. Well, and you've got to describe now, Bonnie Bell. You've got to describe yeah, the ski team, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So... Back in the day, sexism was rampant, and uh, there was a, uh, a a group of well, I'm sorry, there was a cosmetic company, Bonnie Bell Cosmetics, and the owner of that, Jess Bell, um, was a huge ski buff and had developed a line of ski cosmetics and ski clothing. And when I was a racer, before I lost my hand, um, I had been asked to join Bonnie Bell Ski Team, which was a group of nine, I think seven or nine women who um, had sales territories around the country, but who were also viewed as the glamour squad. And they would um, show up at you know, the pro races and, and you know, do marketing and and skiing and hobnobbing and I mean they were they were you know Susie Chaffee do you remember Susie Chapstick was one of the Bonnie Bell girls um, and so you know it was a it was a, a glamour um, and I had told them that I didn't want to join the team until I was out of college but then after I lost my hand um, they didn't call me. Uh, and uh, so I lost my hand when I was uh, in May of 71 and didn't hear anything from them. And then um, at, the, at the Cleveland Ski Show where I was in school, I got a call from them at last. And they said, you know, hey, how come you're not down here with us? And I'm like, uh, well, I mean, I had kind of presumed that the offer was withdrawn. You know, because all I'd been hearing was no, 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 no. And they said, no, you know, we want you. And I'm telling you, I think I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I think it was a huge corporate decision for them. I mean, I'm sure they liked me, but I was the first visibly handicapped person, I think, in the ski industry. Jimmy Yuga came on later. Uh, but I was out, you know, totally on my own in, you know, in, in my sales territory. And I think it was a big decision for them to have somebody who was visibly disabled. But so anyway, they hired me. And but I said, I want to finish my school year. And so they hired me and, and uh, to go out uh, for about six weeks and just go skiing just go to all the different sales territories around the country and go ski with the other ski team members. And um, so I ended up in Sun Valley for the handicap ski races that year. And 
um, met met everyone then. And, you know, I kind of come in as sort of, oh, you know, I'm going to be the glam girl and, you know, I'm kind of above this. And they decked me. I mean, they were like, we could care less about that. You know, get out there and move your butt skiing. Okay. You know, so uh, it, it was, um, you know, very much I attribute it to Bonnie Bell making that decision that uh, they were going to have, you know, break break into the industry with uh, the first disabled ski rep. Which is really interesting because you were there essentially as, I mean, you talk about the sexism and stuff like that. You were there as an attractive female skier. And, and so this is breaking some of those, some of the most conceptions of like, what is beautiful kind of thing. But you also, you, you had at risk, right? When you race these, when you race these men, if they beat you, they got a kiss. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. I, I was afraid to, I was afraid like the circuits would like blow with that degree of sexism so yes but that's absolutely right yes if if it was only the only men were racing and they would come down the nastar course and if they beat my time which not that many did by the way um uh, you know that they would get a kiss from the bonnie bell girl and it was hey you know anything for a buck well, well, think about that too. I mean, this is this is the the one arm, the the Bonnie Bell woman who's missing missing an arm, right. missing a hand, right? And so it, it kind of it took that next step that like the guy in the cheese shop was not willing to do. Suddenly, you you were just working, you were possibly just working in a cheese shop, but now you're a, a sex symbol yes. in some ways, right? Well, yeah, that probably wasn't how I felt, but, uh, but you know, I, I was in, in that sense. I mean, I was one of the Bonnie Bell um, ski team girl, girls, we call them. Um, and, uh, it, you know, and it, it was, it was uh, again, the highest job that a woman had in the ski industry at the time. So it was, um, you know, again, I don't mean to say that if you were VP of something, right. that's not a hire, but there really weren't women in those positions. But being a Bonnie Bell uh, ski team member was pretty much the highest level. Um, and, and there were thousands of, of young women who were applying for it. So, yeah, you were kind of a glamour girl. And super visible. Super visible. Yeah. Super visible. Yeah. You. Yeah, you had to, you know, again, you, you had to, I, I, do you know the skier Billy Kid? Sure, yes. All right. When I went to the Cleveland Ski Show, and I mean, I was maybe six months into my disability, and uh, they had called me and said, come down, and I was a mess. Man, you know, I didn't remember what happened to me yet. I was n not feeling attractive. And um, and I'm sure that showed. And I uh, had gone into the restroom, and Susie Chaffee, Susie Chapstick, was there, and she was standing at the mirror. And as I'm standing at the mirror near her, she looks over at me and she goes, "I have no idea what they were thinking about hiring you. I can't even imagine." 
that they would want to put you out there. I'm like, you're right. You're right. I don't, I don't know either. I have no idea why they want me out here. So I was like a puddle when I left, you know, I, I mean, I didn't have any ego, you know, and I mean that I had zero ego, like, uh, I, I had no idea who I was and, you know, sure. and she reduced me to this puddle and Billy Kidd sat next to me at dinner and uh, he, he had asked me to come up to his room after dinner and I'm thinking, well, okay, but since I couldn't imagine anybody wanting to hit on me at that point, I went up and, and, and he said, he said, I'm not trying to hit on you. I, I want to talk to you. And he, he was remarkable for me. He sat me down and he said, you know, I can just tell you have lost all your confidence. And he said, you deserve to be confident. You know, you are intelligent. You are lovely. You are, you know, you, you are going to do great. And he said, so I want you to do something for me. I want you to, instead of thinking about who you are, I want you to think as if, think as if you're confident. How would you behave if you were confident? Think as if, you know, you, you, you knew where you were going. And that really helped me so much. First of all, it was remarkably kind of him um, to take that little puddle and uh, try and, and help me pull together. Um, so anyway, I've been grateful to him for you. That's interesting. So, so Billy, because you mentioned Jimmy Huga and Billy and Jimmy, it was 1960, I believe, and the slalom were, were silver and bronze medalists, right? And then not too long after that, Jimmy got diagnosed with MS and, and essentially the diagnosis back then was, well, just prepare to die kind exactly. of thing. Right. And, and Jimmy, it was unacceptable to Jimmy. And he's like, well, I'm going to maintain my quality of life and, and continue to ski and do, do whatever I can. Did, did Billy's relationship, friendship with Jimmy, did that help him to, you know, to, to, to be able to give you this message, do you think? That could be. Yeah, Jimmy Hugo did some wonderful things in, in really helping to advance sports for people, again, particularly with MS. But, but I think Billy, uh, Billy was and is an extraordinarily kind and sensitive human being. And I can't say enough good things about him. Uh, well, it's, it's wonderful to see how that came around from Susie saying, I can't believe that they hired you. Oh, he has saying, <laughs> which is which is just awful because that's just under the surface for you you're hoping that somebody else sort of extends a helping hand to you because you're thinking the same thing like oh i hope i hope they don't figure it out and fire me uh, exactly but, exactly which is interesting and we'll get to this as well because that's something that that persists to today it might not be quite as pronounced as it was there but it doesn't get challenged as much, but for you, you started challenging it in skiing. So you saw those athletes out at Sun Valley. How did you get into the racing side again of, ski, of skiing? Because I'm a born competitor. <laughs> it was kind of like, well, 
I'm not sitting on the sidelines here. And also the guys were very cute. And, you know, I was very warm blooded. And, and uh, so, you know, I was going to go where, the, what the guys were doing. I mean, I'd grown up with five brothers, so I was a tomboy. Right. And so, you know, whatever the guys were doing, I always wanted to do for, uh, for good reasons and bad. But, um, but you know, but uh, they were having fun and racing was fun. And, and so I got back into it. What was your first race? Where did you go for your first race? Boy, honestly, I can't remember. You know, it was probably that race in, um, in uh, Sun Valley, you know, just participating in it a little bit. But, you know, then I just started competition uh, pretty seriously, as seriously as you can when you're completely impoverished, you have no sponsors. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, at, at the time I was trying to navigate, you know, lots of different things, but I, I you know, I was, um, I, so I went to, we did, we were at Breckenridge and in uh, California and, and Sun Valley primarily. Did you continue as a Bonnie Bell girl while you were racing? No, um, not, I don't believe I did um, because I, I can't remember why, but I, I, I can't remember whether I did or not, honestly. Um, but I, I stopped being a, going back to the issue of sexism, I was a Bonnie Bell girl for two years and um, the company held a big dinner and all of the vice presidents from all over the country came to this dinner and they were all male, of course. And so uh, seven of us young women were, um, were part of the dinner. And I was walking in with another uh, of the Bonnie Bell ski team girls and uh, we sat down together and the vice president of the company came and put his arms around the two of us and said, girls, I don't want you sitting together. I want you to go sit among the men and uh, make them happy. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. And just like that in my head goes, I'm going to law school. <laughs> and so just like that. I decided I was going to law school, <laughs> so I quit and and uh, went back to school, finished my senior year, and went to law school. Wow! So you went directly to law school from undergrad, and and you were starting to compete. It was interesting because you wrote this article on the nineteen seventy four event, the World Championships in France, and and, and it's so funny. I mean, because. This program is called Name Tags, and it's about the labels that we put on ourselves and others, which are often our limitations. And, and it, it jumped out at me reading your article that one of the organizations was called National Inconvenienced Sportsmen's Association. Right. And I guess I could, I could really emphasize the sportsman's part too, in that it's, it's just about men, it's not about women. Uh, but, but but inconvenienced was the word that jumped out at me. And it's just like, I mean, sometimes it's like the, the labels that we put on ourselves and are, are, are sometimes so in, so misleading. I mean, inconvenienced, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Uh, <laughs> well, in those labels, again, you know, I think in the disability community, 
the labels really have no significance. They're, they're, they're almost kind of a joke, you know, this or that, or, you know, you're gimp. And, and that's true in many uh, subcultures. Sure. You have those, those kinds of names that you are, are, are comfortable with. We're but, allowed to but, say it, but not necessarily everybody yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. And, but, you know, again, you were trying to start to figure out how do I describe to the rest of the world who I, who I want them, to, how I want them to see me. You know, and, and I mean, we, you know, as I said, I use the word handicap a lot, um, not because I'm completely insensitive, but because, you know, that was the term, you were handicapped, handicapped, handicapped. Um, then they came up with inconvenience, <laughs> which was a terrible word. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, they've come up with uh, disabled and many words. But disabled, adaptive, inconvenience. Let me just ask a side question on inconvenience. Have you always been right-handed? Yes, I was very fortunate. Okay, because that would be an inconvenience. In some way. It, I mean, you've lost your, very, your left yeah. hand, but if you were left-handed, it'd be a greater inconvenience, I would yeah. imagine. But I think, you know, we've, we've all struggled with how to describe to the external world how we want to be seen. You know, and, and, you know, I, we all want to be seen as our uh, ability first, our personhood first, and our disability second. And, you know, when you're in the disability community, in the, in the athletic community, you're leading with your disability. You know, you're, you're basically saying, in your face world, I'm bringing it and I'm showing you how in remarkably athletic I can be and what a high level I can be form, perform with my disability. But, you know, I think what's hard is when you move past that and you move into where um, you are, you recognize as a person in your own psychological um, development that your disability is meaningless to you. You know, I mean, yeah, I can't cut my knee, you know, but in, in whatever else there, but it, it almost has no meaning to you. And so you, you struggle with how do I tell you world that this means nothing to me, you know, that this is not in any way who I am, that I'm this greater self. And I think the words are very hard to come by for that. I, you're, you know, you're the commentator, so you probably have much more experience with. In some ways, I mean, it's really interesting, right? Because, because this has nothing to do with who I am, but it also has everything to do with who I am. I'm yeah. a firm believer in the people who've had to confront the most challenging situations, the most trauma in their lives are the people who have the most to teach us because they've had to learn along the way. As you said earlier in this discussion, you, you have to find these strategies. You have to, you have to learn how to do what you, what you need to do in order to be successful. But at the same time, you're, you're not a product of your limitation. You're a product of your ability to adapt to whatever that situation is. And that's the human condition, right? We're the most successful humans are the ones who are able to adapt to a variety of different situations. And something that can be completely overwhelming for one person 
is not overwhelming for somebody else and they find a way through it and to come out better on the other end. And I think that I think that that's that's in a lot of ways what we're talking about here mm -hmm. is trying to find a way to to come out better on the other end, but but have the opportunity to be perceived as better coming out of it as opposed to just seeing the disability and seeing where you started in the beginning and not giving you any any chance. You have said that beautifully, Chris, really beautifully. And I, I'll, I'll just uh, highlight that by saying when I was um, doing interviews for the Olympic and Paralympic Museum, um, they said, you know, they, they were going through a series of questions. And I think you must have had to do the questions too. Um, about the Olympic, uh, the Olympic um, goals, like determination, I can't remember, teamwork, I can't remember what they all are. Then they had the Paralympic uh, goals, I forgot what the word was. And one of those words was courage. Mm -hmm. And I said, I am sorry, but I have no, no no reflection on this that relates to me or to anybody I know who is in sports as a person with a disability. It ain't about courage. It's about joy. It's about wanting to live the, the fullest life you've been given and sometimes given back. And it isn't, you know, courage might enable you to get there, resilience, determination, but but courage isn't, you know, that's that patronizing word. Oh, you're so courageous. No, I'm not, I'm not courageous. I want a life, <laughs> I wanna have fun. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting because I mean some of those things can be can be so flattering. I mean the idea of of being courageous, the, the idea of being inspirational it, are, are, are touch points within within the adaptive or the disabled community and, and and they're touch points because it almost because it feels more like a pigeonhole kind of thing like oh you're courageous and and what does that mean it's courageous that you've left the house it's like no if you want to see the courage it's like okay i'm courageous for going 70 miles an hour on one ski like yeah. okay that's that's courageous and i'm courageous for taking the risk to figure out who i want to be as a person to, to right. not be told, you know, because we get told no. I mean, it's really easy to be told no, right? But, right. you know, to say, okay, you're going to tell me no. The courage is saying, okay, yeah, I, you told me no. I'm going to disregard what you told me and I'm going to take the risk. And if I fall flat on my face, well, I'm going to get up and, and try it again. It's, it, it, but it is interesting how, how sometimes some of the most potentially flattering things have taken on such a pejorative tone or yeah. within, within this community. Right. And so it, it's, it's interesting because we're talking about the physical side, right? The physical side of, of selling in the cheese shop, this physical side of Bonnie Bell, the physical side of skiing. But then you go to law school and you are right-handed. So I'm assuming that missing your left hand, other than you have to carry around gigantic books when you're in law school, probably didn't affect your ability. What was the perception from professors? Not in slightest, you know, Nothing. do your homework. No, I, I mean, as soon as I was in law school, I can't say I ever had any, uh, you know, I, I never related 
to having a disability in law school. I, I can't really say I ever did. But I had, I, well, having said that, I didn't relate to having a physical disability. I had horrendous PTSD um, and trying to take exams when I was in a, uh, a, a, a situation that I quote, couldn't get out of would trigger that. Um, so I had to have some adaptation, but other than that, um, no, nothing at all. You know, I, I mean, I, maybe I just wasn't registering it and people were going around, isn't she inspirational? Isn't she courageous? But I never heard that. Interesting. Why, why law school? Well, because, um, because that is, I think, um, who I was always meant to be. I, I was always an advocate and I was always somebody who um, was very focused on law and policy. And so it was just the very logical step. And then moving from law school, you, you practiced and then you moved into healthcare. And I'm, I'm assuming there was a there was a significant reason to move into the healthcare side of it. How did that work? Well, I was practicing law, and uh, my second daughter was born with a um, chronic a, with chronic illness from birth. She was a um, born an asthmatic, and you know, serious asthmatic, and uh, we could not, my husband and I could not get her on our insurance policy um, because she had a pre-existing condition. And I cannot tell you of all the moments in my life that have galvanized and tempered my resolve. It was that moment when I came to the recognition that a child, an innocent child, could not have access to healthcare because they had been born with a disability. And man, I changed just like that. Overnight, I uh, basically became, well, I went and um, we were living in Colorado and I helped a state senator do, I did the grassroots lobbying to get a um, health plan started for people who had disabilities and were medically uninsurable. And from that, um, I became chair of that. And then I was appointed into the um, Department of Insurance as a regulator and became an insurance regulator, but on the side was also working a lot on the Americans with Disabilities Act, and then the Affordable uh, Care Act. Uh, so it just all kind of came together. So this is this is the mama bear moment, it sounds like. <laughs> do not, do not cross me on this. Yeah. And so what was, so, so, so your child could not get healthcare, which, which just sounds uh, uh, abominable, uh, but then, what did you find as you started working through the system in terms of trying, trying to trying to create support, trying to trying to find support to help you to help you effectively change and, and and serve people so that they could flourish? What was how did you find allies and how did you how did you combat the system? Well, I think there were a lot of allies. 
Um, I met a woman who came to me as an attorney and who ultimately became a friend and colleague who said to me, who came to me to do a divorce, to, to divorce her husband. And I said, you know, you guys seem like you get along. You're one of the few couples who seems to actually be happy. Um, and she said, well, I am um, a brittle diabetic and I uh, cannot get on his insurance coverage. And the only way I can get coverage for my medical condition is to divorce him and go on Medicaid. It's true. Okay. This is absolute truth. And um, again, it was one of those moments where, where you just say, you know what? I may be only one person, but I am, I'm, I am going to be, become powerful. Um, I'm going to, I, I have to become powerful because I have to, I have to be that person. I have to be the person who gets this changed. And so I basically just taught myself insurance and insurance law and insurance policy, and then worked at the Capitol in Colorado to do, um, you know, smaller changes. But then also um, once I was in California and heading up the Department of Managed Healthcare, overseeing all the sort of healthcare, uh, health insurance um, for HMOs and managed care, then I was able to participate more directly with uh, legislative efforts in Washington, DC and in Cal Cal excuse me, California. Which California, I mean, you talk about just the the, the massive population of California and the diversity of population. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like that, that is a place where, where you have the opportunity to define a change that, that can become national. What was the, what was the support like? Cause I mean, obviously you have a job that you have to do and you have a personal part of the job that that you that you want to do serving first your your daughter and and then this woman who who was seeking a divorce so she could get insurance coverage what was how did that pathway work for you well you know again you're always separating your uh public and private self um but um i think I think I was just in an advocacy group. Um, I was in the, you know, when I had been in law school, I'd been in the disability advocacy community in DC, moved to Colorado in the disability community advocacy group there, moved to insurance and insurance practices. Um, and, um, and, it, and then you know, moved to California and then uh, was in, in that. And in those, very public roles, you are um, you are nothing but a leader. That's what that you you know. Again, we recognize that you know that your job is not to be not to be emotional, not to not to you know, but to make sure you're just hitting issues head on, and that you are in fact being the best advocate for these services that you can. And then you go home and you're a puddle. 
you know, I mean, my, my daughter had serious asthma and, and on occasion would basically stop breathing. And, um, and I, she did that one time. And I just remember thinking when, when, you know, you hit her on the back and you're getting her going and you're getting up to the hospital. I was thinking, you know, I am 10 minutes away from my hospital. And, you know, if other parents are not that close, their child may die. And it, it so your, your personal life really inspires you and keeps you going when you have those challenges from the external sources. How much did your skiing experience inform what you did in your job? Because you said that at that time you could expect to be a shut-in, that you could expect not to be out, but then suddenly you're out and you were so public. I mean, that's one of the things I love about skiing is that it really is public. You share the mountain with everybody else. So you're doing what you do and they're doing what they do, but you can't help but see each other. How much did that experience inform what we what you did professionally? Well, I think you've said it better than I could, which is that you're out. You're, you're, you're out. I mean, just the fact that you are out and living your life and doing an activity that most people didn't do back then defines you in a certain way. You are already in a certain category. You are not a disabled person. You have, in order to get to that ski hill, had to develop uh, skills and personas and defenses that enable you to then uh, use that platform of being out there and participating in a sport and move that into other areas of your life. And uh, like I say, I think you said it uh, as well as I possibly could. Well, you also, you, you met a wide variety of different people as well, where, you know, disability in some ways, it's easy to, to put it all under one heading and, and it is to a certain extent, but there, there are a variety of different forms as well, where you have people who are amputees, you have visually impaired people, you have people who are in wheelchairs, you have people like your daughter who have trouble breathing, uh, you have the, the woman with diabetes, you have a, a wide variety. And I, I would imagine that, that that was a bit of an education for you, where it was not just speaking about your personal experience, but it was your personal experience. It was just, it was just that much bigger in terms of, in terms of scope but also, I, I'm assuming, and tell me if I'm wrong in this, that it was also a representation of how, how people wanted to live their lives. Were, were you taking that message to the administrator people, to the legislator people, but also potentially to, to, to the people who are, who are newly injured, who are, who are in that position? Well, again, you're very articulate, and uh, and I think you've again said it said it well. You, you know, you're you're taking that personal experience, but what you're trying to do, uh, I don't know how to say this. So I'm a lawyer. Um, what I care about, I don't really, at the end of the day, care how you feel about 
your ability to discriminate against me. Okay, you know, feel however you want to feel. Um, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it doesn't happen. And so I think as, a, as an attorney, um, and again, public policy person, um, you know, you're dealing less with the notion of other people and trying to expand their acceptance, which you might be doing in your private life and through your participation. I participated with Achieve TAFO um, uh, with, the, with their program. But more you're saying, you know, these are the lines, folks, because I think sometimes it's people aren't clear enough about those lines. And it's like this far, no farther, no further. And, um, and, you know, we are going to, you know, I don't care if you don't think my daughter should get insurance, she's getting insurance. I don't care if you think that you should be able to rate up the insurance policy because somebody lost their leg. It ain't happening. You know, so I, I, I fundamentally believe as an attorney and as a public policy and as a public person that introducing clarity is extremely important because that starts defining, that sets out a whole new ripple of definition into communities. I think so. We're, we're going to have to get you out of here soon, but can we loop back around to where we started? So you won the first American female Paralympic gold medal in the Winter Games. What do your daughters think of you being in the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Hall, Paralympic Committee uh, Museum for the medals that you won well before they were ever born? Well, first of all, we all know if you have you know, I, I, if you have children, you know, they don't think of, they don't believe that you had any life before they were born. So that's just a given. And then as they grow older, they have to roughly acknowledge that something, something was present in your life before they happened. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're really proud of me, but, you know, the, the thing I hope that they're most proud of me for is that I have um, been someone who has been a soft place to land in their lives and in their kids' lives. That's that's the best. That's the best thing to be of all. So, you you, you are their unconditional support. Exactly. Yes, and fierce defender. I would imagine as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> Fierce defender and unconditional support. Cindy, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you telling us your story and for all the all the hard work that you've put in for so many people for so many years. Oh, well, you are welcome. And um, thank you. As I said, you're a very insightful inquisitor. Well, thank you. Well, that's high praise. I really appreciate it. It's what I hope for. Uh, so if I can help you to, if I can help get more of your story, I think that to me, that, that seems like we've done a great job together. So thank you so much. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Again, the greatest gift that you can give us 
is to tell your friends to say, hey, I watched this and I loved it. And please check it out. It will be a podcast later on. Please like us, please follow us. And we will come back with another great story next week. Thanks very much.